Wow. That was surprising, huh? <laughs> I don't think the Lord's finished yet, so I'm going to rattle through some of this because I want us just to give him the space. But, do you know, the, the whole thing about Christmas is God is always surprising us. He is the God of surprises. You know, I, I can remember one Christmas when, you know, God surprised me as I was watching a YouTube clip of my favorite evangelist. And in the clip, he was actually co-hosting with a guy who I would never have thought, you know, that he would ever share the platform with. This guy has actually got a massive church, you know, he's very influential amongst Christian circles, you know, and he represented so many things that I disagree with theologically. He preaches things that have been proven to be damaging at times to people, and he emphasizes on money and wealth I find utterly distasteful. And as I watched all this, well, the alarm bells were ringing in my head. And I'm praying, God, what's going on here? I mean, this is, is this, you know, and I, I, what's going on? That was just that. I was flabbergasted. And I don't know if it was actually my self-consciousness or the Holy Spirit that just hit the pause button, you know, in my life. And I was faced with a question. And the question was, why is this upsetting me so much? Why am I getting so upset by this? To which my answer was, well, I just don't get it. You know, is my favorite evangelist actually endorsing the things that I think are actually harmful and all that this man stands for? And then that led to my next question was, why are you judging your favorite evangelist based on who he's interacting with? Why are you doing that, Jamie? And it struck me that often we think things are just black and white. We think they're either right or we think they're actually wrong. Here's what I've learned from this unexpected surprise that I learned that Christmas. That kind of thinking that I had leaves no room for God's grace, no room for repentance, no room for celebration and when someone changes, and no room for expectant love. Let me take you through a thought experiment. Okay, we're going to engage with a thought experiment. Yeah, thank you. You are. Thank you, TD. <laughs> you see, sometimes we see a task or a need or a mission that needs to happen. And we can say to God, say, let's say one I need to, you know, for this task to happen is 100 pounds. And God, to achieve this, do you know, I need 100 pounds. And if you could give it to me in five 20 pound notes, that would be absolutely great. And all of a sudden, after I've prayed that prayer, I hear this knock at the door. Do you know, and a delivery man's actually standing there and says, hey, Jamie, I've got a delivery from God for you. And it's a tanker of diesel fuel. And I'm like, what? I'm going, what do I do with this? Diesel's ugly, it's messy, it smells. That's not what I asked for. I wanted you to partner with me with a hundred pounds and you send me a tanker full of diesel. And in so doing, we fail to see the volume what's just in front of us. We also fail to understand the growth and the multifaceted journey, do you know, that this will, do you know, take us on and enrich us and mature us and develop us in. As we take what God has given us and we turn it into something actually more valuable than if he had only merely given me a hundred pounds. You see, we miss the lives of that journey that we'd engage with, that we may influence so that their story will actually change. And it was something inside of me that had blinded me to that fact, that God could be using my favorite evangelist to change the guy that I actually had deep-seated reservations about. And for me, that Christmas was actually a paragraph, a paragraph in my story about choosing to look at things from a bigger perspective, from God's perspective, which I share with you guys this morning because I want you guys to know that I'm on a journey just as much as you are, getting sorted out on the way. 
I want to be real with you and sharing not only my successes, but also my failures, my journey to God's, you know, uh, path for my life where He's correcting me, and by His grace and His mercy in my life, He's intervening. Because none of us are perfect, not one of us. And if you came to church this morning looking for a perfect church, perfect pastor, perfect group of leaders, and you came to the wrong church, I'm sorry to inform you about that. But if you're looking for, sorry, Teeny, <laughs> there's one or two. <laughs> but if you're looking for honesty and integrity in a community that are not afraid to be surprised by God, when he puts his finger on something like he did there through the guys at the back that gave me that word to kind of minister that way, then you've came to the right church because we're not afraid to do that. If you're looking for a community who are not afraid to change and challenge each other and spur each other on in this life to follow Jesus, then you're welcome. You're welcome here. Amen. So that was my surprise that God so loved me that he allowed me to have that aha moment that gave me the opportunity to change and renew my mind, which has been a bit of a theme this year, you know, not to conform to the patterns of this world, but be you know, transformed by the renewing of our minds. See, our God is a God of the unexpected surprises. So He is. And this week as we continue this unexpected, you know, surprise and continue this series where Christmas changes everything, we're going to look at three surprises from the Scriptures. We're going to look at the unexpected surprising truths found in the Christmas story. The surprisingly unexpected type of people that God actually invites into the story and the undeserved surprise of why he came to earth. Have you ever noticed that as you read the Bible, that God seems to do things illogically according to a Western mindset and unexpected, do you know, to the human mindset as well? You see, I'm equally surprised and also delighted by the type of people that God actually chooses in the way God does things. I mean, it seems at times that everything's back to front. But when you begin to understand this, that God doesn't actually see things through the lens that our culture views them. Because in Isaiah 55, verse 8, it says this, My thoughts are nothing like your thoughts, says the Lord, and my ways are far beyond anything that you could possibly imagine. The implication of that text alone is that we are to be constantly surprised by God's ways and what He'd want us to actually do. I mean, for instance, how much of the Bible seems like an oxymoron to you? Do you know, strength through weakness, not muscles weakness. Matthew 20 verse 16, so the last will be first, and the first will be last. The first century Jews, do you know, when they heard the Christmas story, that was an oxymoron to them. And as we look at the story of Jesus actually coming into the world, we will see some surprises that I believe that God is actually embedding and interwoven into His story that is often overlooked or just read on too quickly. And it can almost get lost at times in the narrative because it's pretty huge when you think about it. It's a pretty huge thing when you talk about God himself coming into human history, taking on flesh and blood and walking amongst us. I mean, everything else sort of kind of pales by comparison to that reality. The prospect alone of a virgin could give birth to not just a child, but a virgin could give birth to, you know, the Son of God. It's absolutely incredulous when you think about it. And because that's so hard sometimes to get your head around, it's easy to miss out all the other things that are embedded into the Christmas story as well. Yet, when we understand 
When we learn to see things from God's perspective and apply them to our lives, our world becomes a better place. It becomes more tolerant. It becomes safer. It becomes happier. It becomes, as Tini was prophesying from the front, more joyful. See, God's surprise says change everything. They make us stop. They make us look. They make us ask questions. They make us make choices. They give us a different worldview. They invite us into a new way, a better way of life just like my encounter that I had that Christmas. The world was given a surprise, a surprise present on Christmas Day, a present which enabled mankind to see God more clearly than they had ever seen Him before, a present which was a surprise to every single person. I mean, the birth of Jesus was a surprise to Mary, we discovered last week. Why me, she asked the angel, when he announced that she'd give birth to the Son of God. The birth of Jesus was a surprise to Joseph. I mean, what's my wife been, my future wife been up to, he asked, because they'd never slept together. It wasn't what the Jewish people themselves were actually expecting either. I mean, the child didn't come from the right place either. I mean, whether you call his home Bethlehem or Nazareth, because Nathaniel actually remarked, you know, in John's gospel, he said, you know, there was a kind of general attitude, can anything good come from Nazareth? And whilst Bethlehem might have been an important biblical location at one time centuries ago, by now it's just a little backwater, you know, kind of village in the hills that surrounded Jerusalem. He wasn't born even into the right family. He didn't have money. He didn't have political, you know, power or religious influence. His father was only a rural carpenter slash stonemason from the unfashionable, you know, end of the country. It wasn't even a nice place thought of. So how could a child from such a background be the one to save Israel? This was so back to front in the mindset of the people these days. I mean, he didn't even come from a stable home background. Forgive the pun. Nobody got that one, okay. <laughs> It'll be on a Christmas cracker sometime. There were rumors. There were rumors and gossip about the legitimacy of his birth before he was even born, and that continued throughout his life. So how could such a person be God's chosen one. Well, you see, it makes us ask the question. It invites us to make choices. It gives us a kingdom perspective, and it leads us into life and life to the fullest. So, let's look at Luke chapter 2, verse 1, and recount the story. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone went out to his own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to the firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in clothes and placed him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Now, you'd be mistaken if you thought, well, this is just a tiny temporary anomaly in the life of Jesus. I mean, it was just bad timing with the census and all. Maybe Joseph forgot to book a hotel, a bit of indoor camping in a stable or a cave, probably more accurately, you know, completely incidental, no big deal. But I believe that this was actually a defining part of Jesus' life story. It's not incidental that Jesus was born in a manger. I mean, Joseph and Mary, two people that God chose to take care of his life, were essentially, at that moment in time, homeless. And I think one of the embedded truths 
in the nativity story is that we should care about all the problems of homelessness that's round about us. Now, when I say homeless, you've got to realize there's many different forms of homelessness. Homelessness just means to disconnect. There is the obvious. There is a hidden. There is the lonely. If I get people to do life with, I belong anywhere. Of all the ways God could have chosen to enter into the world, God chose the first experience in his human existence was to have no place to actually live. And that he would be born in a manger. I mean, we use the word manger, don't we? Because it's more romantic than a feeding trough and it doesn't rhyme with some of the hymns that we sing. <laughs> Do you know, away in a feeding trough. You know, it would be really hard to write those beautiful songs about Jesus being born in a feeding trough. And we have the tendency, don't we, to romanticize the Christmas nativity scene, you know, like that, you know, up there with that cozy, warm-looking kind of picture. My uncle used to have a farm. And every time we went into the barn or the stables, you would be overwhelmed by the smells, to be quite honest. There's nothing romantic about being born in a stable. It's not indoor camping by any shape of the means. You know, it's rough, it's cold, it's smelly. Vets back me up on this. I mean, one cow alone produces 280 liters of methane a day. That's a lot of belching and flatulence in your bedroom. So it is uncomfortable, noisy, full of harmful bacteria. And what we need to realize is that Jesus is ushered into this moment in time and history in the condition of homelessness, filth, and poverty. So it is a surprisingly ill-fitting birthplace for the King of Kings, unless there was a point to it. And you might say, well, Jamie, that was just temporary. I mean, he had a home, not just there. Well, that's not really true either, because that was just the opening scene in Jesus' life. In fact, in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 2, it continues, and it gives us a surprising further insight into the early life of Jesus, especially in verse 13. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said, take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and they left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. When Herod realized what he had been, that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious, and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time that he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. And so we know that not only was Jesus born into homelessness, but what we find is that for the first years of Jesus' life, he was actually a refugee and asylum seeker in the country of Egypt, a stranger in a strange land. And what is also curious about Jesus is it's not only begins his life as an infant born into homelessness, but he also, the first few years of his life, he's an immigrant, running from violence and oppression like so many people in our country today. It's a strange thing that as I was writing this, I was remembering when Linda and I used to work with the homeless and the prostitutes and the rough sleepers in the city. And there's a lady called Talbot Berry who took Linda and I, you know, under her wing, took us out onto the streets, and she was working with addicts, you know, rough sleepers, but essentially it was a community of homeless people. And I remember we met this guy one night who was an alcoholic and he was sleeping in a bush just off Paisley Road West, you know, opposite the Talbot Center. 
And this guy's story was his wife had died, so he started to drink. He made some serious errors in the workplace. He lost his job, and it was just a long story of a downward spiral. Now he's homeless, sleeping in a bush. And when we met him, he was caught up in the poverty trap, homelessness, destitute, lost to addiction, and it had ensnared him. And I remember Betty getting him into a dry ward. And when he'd gone through, you know, withdrawal, she actually took him into her home and gave him a roof over his head. And eventually she helped him to become reunited with one of his family. It was actually his daughter and helping him out of this lifestyle of homelessness. And I remember asking Betty as a young Christian, Betty, how do you do what you do? And she said this to me. And I always remember, she said, I see baby Jesus in them. That's what I see. And I remember that my Savior was once homeless. And, you know, how could I not offer them a bed and a roof over their heads? She said, Jamie, one day he's coming back and it's going to be soon. And then she read to me a scripture from Matthew 25, verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his throne in heavenly glory. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and here it is, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me, and I was sick. You looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry, and feed you, or thirsty, and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, I tell you the truth. Whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. And she said, you see, Jamie, these are the things we should value because Jesus at his birth in the Christmas story you know, has embedded them into the core of who he is and what he calls us to be. And that stuck with me all my life. So it's no wonder that Jesus has, you know, this is how I'm going to divide between those who are sincere and those who are insincere. This is going to be the dividing line of how I know whether you have genuinely given your life to me, that you see in me and those that have no place and that you actually create a place for them. Now, we all know the story of the Good Samaritan. And if I were to ask you, what's it about? Maybe you would say, well, it's been about good to people. We need to treat them well. And sometimes, again, we read the stories and forget the context of the story and miss out asking, is there a question to us in this story? See, the point of the Good Samaritan isn't just Jesus saying, look, I just want you to go and be better people. Be nicer to people and help homeless people. Give them a couple of pounds, you know, if you see them. That's not what he's saying. He's actually saying that the essence of life is that you now see people and you value people. And when you see that need that you can actually meet, and you can't meet all the needs, but when you do and the ones you can, then do something to help that person who desperately needs someone to help them. And the question is how to achieve eternal life. And the answer is love God and love people, all people, even the ones who are different from us. 
And I know so many of you guys are actually doing that faithfully week in and week out, and I just applaud you, you know, for that. Here's the second point. Surprisingly unexpected type of people that God partners with. How are we doing for time? Okay, let's read the scriptures. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying glory to God in the highest. Heaven and earth, peace to those in whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. And when they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. Do you know, if I was in a Christmas play, please sign me up to any some point. I want to play a shepherd, okay? I mean, they get to wear cool robes, don't they, and a big stick, you know, that's it. And we romanticize about shepherds at Christmas. We make them handsome, we make them, that's why I want to be one, uh, rugged, we make them victor- uh, virtuous, so we do. Now, obviously, the shepherds, they must have been godly, eh? Because the angels gave them the birth announcement of Jesus first. Plus, they get the prime spots in the creche as well, so obviously it's a favoritism. So they're righteous, right? No, wrong, completely wrong. Surprisingly, shepherds at the time of Jesus were actually the bottom of society. So they were, actually they were barely above lepers. That's how they were considered. Shepherds and thieves were thought to be one and the same. So they were. Whether they were honest or dishonest, all shepherds had one thing in common. They were regarded as filthy. Living outdoors 24-7 does not exactly allow you to keep up good personal hygiene. Do you know, shepherds smelled like sheep and all that goes with sheep. Do you know, they were not only dirty, they were ritually unclean as well, having touched blood, feces, insects on a daily basis, basically disqualified them from any part of being involved in religious circles. And as far as the religious leaders of the day were concerned, they concerned them as non-people. They were outcasts from society, and the religious leaders of the day considered them as losers, so they did, with a capital L. So Jesus is just a few hours old here, and we have some very important things playing out in this story that's so easy to miss, especially we only think the shepherds as handsome, godly men, you know, with sticks that look good in nativity scenes. Surprisingly, no. Shockingly, I would say, to the first century Jew, why would it have been ritually unclean men who were the first to bow down to the Messiah. Here's food for thought. You see, we are classically taught that the old covenant ended when Jesus died on the cross and the curtain of the temple was torn in two and God was accessible. But food for thought, could it be it actually ended the moment that he was born? Could it be? The formalities that some people had to go through to enter into the very presence of God were now actually history behind us. The entering into the presence of God was not just, you know, reserved for the high priest anymore, but it was for all peoples, regardless of who you were or what your background was. The surprise here 
is that Jesus accepts those who are not perfect, who don't line up with the religious ideals of the day. The shepherds had not performed the cleansing sacrifices or made atonement for their sins and, you know, to become ritually clean here. They ran from the fields and in their unclean, you know, impure state, proclaimed to all what the angel had actually told them. I think that's fascinating. They shouted for all to hear and the baby accepted them, you know, as they were. Here's my last point. We're going to rattle through this very quickly. The undeserved surprise of why he came to earth. It seems that the shepherds and the people actually soon forgot about what had happened. And you know what? We too forget sometimes the surprises that we get at Christmas. Because by the time Jesus was an adult, no one seems to remember the amazement, you know, story of his, or the surprise, you know, his birth. It was only written about, you know, decades later. Perhaps the debate today, maybe it's overt commercialism, the business of life, or the strategy of the enemy to take Christ out of Christmas that has curbed our excitement about it, and yearly attempts to make the reason for the season forgotten or consigned to myth and fable stories told by a warm fireside on a cold winter's night. But I've noticed, guys, that children, they seem to find it easier to retain this sense of awe and excitement about the Christmas story, far more than adults. Perhaps that's why Jesus says, truly I tell you that unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter into the kingdom of heaven. I think there's something that we're in danger of losing there. Children or those with childlike faith, shall we say, seem to be able to hear stories anew year after year and still feel that surprise, do you know, that the shepherds felt that first Christmas morn. They feel the excitement of the news, the God's chosen Savior, the King of Kings, the one who threw stars in the space, was born into ordinary people. You know, a couple far from home, and that he began his life being laid in a manger, a feeding trough, which begs the question, how can we adults then retain the sense of excitement and the realization that this event enables us to see more clearly than ever before what our Heavenly Father is truly like. Especially when we've heard the story so many times. I've been preaching this story for 27 years. It's hard to bring stuff new out of it. But have you ever had the wonder? Have you ever looked up at the stars at night and looked at the night sky and go, wow, there's a lot of stars up there? Do you know, it's estimated that there's 76 trillion didn't even know that was a word. 76 trillion stars in the universe. That is actually seven followed by 22 zeros for all the mathematicians out there. Do you know, it would take a pretty big God to create all of those stars. Ironically, it's the same God that we see portrayed on the Christmas cards of a little baby surrounded by shepherds and farms. How could someone like that throw those stars in the space? That's not a surprise and doesn't blow your mind. I don't know what is. An all-powerful God lying helplessly in a manger doesn't seem the most, you know, fitting place for the creator of the universe, does it? What if the reason, and I'll come into land, what if the reason that God showed up in Bethlehem over 2,000 years ago was to know you? You're like, who, me? Yeah, you, to know you. And you may say, well, that sounds kind of absurd. And you'd be right, it sounds pretty ridiculous. But why would God, the God of the universe, want to know you? What could God hope to get out of a relationship with you? Gifts? Could he get a gift from you? 
Probably not, because he created everything and owns it anyway, so there's not a lot that you could bring there. Flattery, like, mm, yeah, God, I really like what you've done with the place, you know. I think he already knows. Do you know that? You see, you've only got one thing that you can give God that's really of value, true value, and that's yourself. It's the only thing that he wants is yourself. That at Christmas, we remember that God entered into time and space to intersect with your life, to know you and be known by you, to love you and be loved by you, to save you. I've got more I was going to say. Another few pages, but I think I need to shut up now because I think the Holy Spirit wants to minister. So I'm going to ask the band to come up.